You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Today's show is also brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Bloodgroove, Andrew, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, M.D., Jacob, Scuttlebutt, Matt, Hartman, Gingrich, Misfit, Lisa, Clan Roland, Big Beard, Willie P., Schmarls, Buggy the Clown, Leslie the Spice Chonger, The Admiral Benbow, Chairboat, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Gunsway Sally, Pitlock, The Sextant, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin-Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Scarlet Dawn, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time we discussed what Stephen Johnson dubs the Ghost Trial. Six crewmen from the fancy, and Henry Every himself, but in absentia, were all found not guilty on the charge of piracy on the high seas. Specifically, they were found not guilty of piracy against the Mughal ship Ganji Sawai. Johnson calls it the ghost trial because the proceedings were almost completely erased after the fact. All official court records were destroyed, and England did her level best to pretend that the trial had never happened. But to their credit, England did honor the verdict. Officially, Henry Every and those six pirates who were actually in custody were exonerated. So, is that it? Were these six men in custody now free to go? You know, you can imagine them in the courtroom upon hearing the not guilty verdict, throwing their fists into the air and whooping and hugging and generally celebrating. All the while, Judge Hedges calling down, Order! Order! But these men were not free to go. Rumors of a not guilty verdict due to the response of the accused began to spread into the crowd outside. As rumors in crowds tend to do, it got a little bit rambunctious, so the pirates were bundled through the door back into Newgate Prison, where they would remain in custody. 
After the trial had concluded with that not guilty verdict, the prosecution huddled together. They even went into the judge's chambers. They lost this case, somehow, but they were not under any circumstances going to let these pirates go free. They needed a new plan. This is episode 255, Villainous Robberies and Barbarities. That first trial, the Ghost Trial, is an important moment in history for a number of different reasons. In the history of the English legal tradition, it sets a standard for a certain honesty and integrity. Even though the Crown and the Court hated what had happened, they agreed to abide by the finding of the Court, although they were about to do their best to circumvent it. But it's also an important moment in the history of journalism. The daily newspaper was not yet an institution, but weekly journals were published in London and the other large cities in Europe, but they served much the same purpose as a newspaper. And these journals were pumping out daily broadsheets with something like special edition scrawled across the top. You know when you hear newsies, you know, street urchins in Victorian times hawking newspapers, but when you hear them say, extra, extra, read all about it, well, this is what they're talking about. These broadsheets were an extra publication, in addition to their weekly journal. When the newsies would scream, extra, extra, read all about it, it's because they had a hot piece of news right off the presses that you wanted to get your hands on. Here in the autumn of 1696, there was only one story, Henry Every. Everyone was writing about the Every Gang, and the presses all around London were ready to publish articles about the trial of the pirates. As soon as the proceedings were complete, they were ready to go. One London publication had a journal already printed, but they had a large blank space left for the article about the trial itself. When that journal went out, and it had to go out, there was still just a large blank space. It contained only one single sentence. It read, quote, We had prepared a more ample account of the trial of the pirates, but in compliance with the prohibition of authority, we have omitted it. England in 1696 had something almost akin to freedom of the press, but not quite. They could still call a complete media blackout any time they wanted. But that was it. I mean, no one published anything about the verdict, either guilty or not guilty. The Crown was trying as hard as possible to keep that verdict quiet. But we, of course, know that they were found not guilty, and the question is, why were the pirates found not guilty? I mean, they obviously did it, right? No one in the courtroom was even denying that fact. None of the pirates were on the stand saying something like, you know, you've got the wrong guy, I'm a patsy. They were past that point. But they did argue quite a bit about what they personally did on the raid. They all claimed, for instance, that they had not taken part in the rape. And, you know, we can never know what actually happened on the Ganji Sawai, but that's at least kind of plausible. But then, of course, the pirates also could have just been lying. They all also said that they didn't take part in the fighting, and that, to the courtroom probably sounded plausible as well. 
These pirates were, well, a couple of them were still very young. One of them was pretty old, and the rest of them were scrawny and sickly. I mean, none of them looked like hardened killers. But I don't think any of that is why the jury found these pirates not guilty. They had still taken part in piracy, everything else aside. I think, first of all, the reason that they were found not guilty was Henry Every. Not the real Henry Every, but the fictitious version that the hawkers and balladeers had been peddling for over a year now. The dashing, noble Robin Hood version of Henry Every. He'd become something of a folk hero to the English, and I think the verdict reflects that. Most of all, the big reason, though, that these men were found not guilty, in my opinion, but it's shared by most, is old-fashioned racism. You know, Henry Every wrote that letter that had been widely published announcing his intentions to turn pirate, but also never to turn against the English, a letter he signed as yet an Englishman's friend. Now, of course, he broke that promise almost immediately, but at this point, nobody seems to have known that. You know, all Henry Avery and these six men did was rape and rob and kill some foreign Moors. You know, they weren't English, they weren't white, they weren't even Christian, so the jury just didn't care. Or maybe there was just an anti-authoritarian bent to some of them. I mean, think about the arguments that the prosecutors were making. If you don't prosecute these pirates, our trade in India is finished. You know, these jurors didn't have any interest in the trade in India. None of them were getting wealthy from it. Most of them probably saw nothing at all that benefited them in the trade in India. They didn't care about that either, so it's not a very persuasive argument among certain crowds. So it looked like the juries just weren't going to care about crimes against Muslims, crimes with which they could not charge the pirates anymore anyway. That would be double jeopardy. But they were going to charge these pirates with something. And if they didn't care about foreigners of different religions, what if they charged these pirates with crimes against Englishmen? The prosecution decided to charge these pirates with mutiny against the captains and owners of Spanish expedition shipping they were going to charge them with stealing the Charles II. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. 
we'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. The court reconvened on 19th October 1696. This time, the tension in the streets was close to boiling over. You know how, these days, every stupid little thing has somehow become political. From the smallest decisions we make, you know, the kind of shoes we're wearing, people can extrapolate that you're either a pinko commie or a brown shirt thug. Well, imagine if there was a group of pirates that had somehow been turned into folk heroes on the one hand, real working-class heroes, and on the other, violent opponents of order and prosperity. People in the streets were coming to blows over this, what was essentially a non-issue for their real lives. The term trial of the century had not yet been coined, at least not that I can find, and regardless, the 1600s had already seen the trial of a king, which ended in that king losing his head. But this trial surely would have been England's second trial of the century. It opened with a statement by High Judge Sir Charles Hedges, and he begins with a definition of the crimes with which these men were to be charged. He said, quote, Piracy is only a sea term for robbery, piracy being robbery committed within the jurisdiction of the admiralty. If any man can be assaulted within that jurisdiction, and his ship or goods violently taken away without legal authority, this is robbery and piracy. End quote. The judge was blurring the lines a bit between piracy and robbery, broadening the definition, really, to encompass everything that these pirates were about to be accused of. He was also reminding the jury that just because these pirates robbed on the sea, that doesn't make them any different from the highwaymen, which you all have had to deal with, and nobody liked the highwaymen. This was a careful speech, crafted to match the charges that the pirates were about to face. The judge then turned to the prosecution, and he said, quote, If you have returned any of the former jury, then you have not done well, for that verdict was a dishonor to the nation. End quote. Now, Hedges, of course, knew that none of the former jurors had been returned. This was entirely for the new jury's benefit. He was lambasting the former jury and a bit the prosecution for choosing them, but he was letting this new batch of jurors know that they were expected to do better. He told the jurors, quote, I wish that all others who were concerned in the dispatch of that day's business, the previous trial, had the like presence as yourselves to do the same. The public justice of the nation would not then have had any manner of reproach, neither would you have had this further trouble. But finding that it hath happened, it is become absolutely necessary for a further and strict inquiry should be made after these crimes, which threaten and tend to the destruction of our navigation and our trade. End quote. 
there at the beginning, he's saying this is all a giant waste of time. We shouldn't be here in the first place. Had the former jury done their job, none of you would have been bothered to be here today. But since we are here, you all better get it right. And if I'm being honest here, I mean, he's not wrong. The pirates did it. They were definitely guilty of all the crimes of which they were accused. They should have absolutely been found guilty. This second trial really never needed to happen, but all of this feels a bit heavy-handed, doesn't it? When the judge tells these jurors that the prior verdict was a dishonor to the nation and that they would only reclaim their honor if they did their jobs right, well, that appears to be telling them what to think which is, you know, illegal. So the judge backtracked a bit there at the end. He said, quote, I hope that what has been said on this unexpected occasion will not be looked upon as intended to influence the jury. I am sure it is far from being so designed. Religion, conscience, honor, common honesty, humanity, and all laws forbid such methods. End quote. You know, that's punching somebody in the face and saying, I hope that didn't hurt. With that final statement, though, the charges were finally read aloud. The court charged the pirates, quote, that Henry Every, alias Bridgman, Joseph Dawson, Edward Forsyth, William May, William Bishop, James Lewis, and John Sparks, on the 30th of May in the sixth year of the reign of our sovereign Lord King William, and the late queen, did against the peace of God and our sovereign lord the king, upon the high and open seas, in a certain place about three leagues from the groin, and within the jurisdiction of the admiralty of England, piratically and feloniously set upon Charles Gibson, commander of a certain merchant ship called the Charles the Second. End quote. The charges go on for some time. They begin to list everything that was aboard the Charles II, all the way from the 40 pieces of ordnance and the cargo down to, and this is serious, Captain Gibson's stockings. Oh, and, you know, I haven't mentioned it, but Queen Mary died back in 1694. She was perfectly healthy, but caught a case of smallpox and passed away rather suddenly. Once the charges were read, the pirates were called to enter a plea. Now, none of them had been made aware of the charges that were to be levied against them before the fact. You know, that's maybe the biggest injustice in this trial of injustices. The scales are definitely weighted against them, but this one, that's huge. The pirates didn't learn about the charges until today, in court. Neither did their lawyer. They, I mean, they didn't even know why they were still in prison. You know, they'd been found not guilty, right? Shouldn't they get to go home? But no, and now, today, they were finding out. It was a blind side, and they weren't able to prepare defense at all. You know, William Dampier, who they called in the ghost trial, might actually have been some good here. But they didn't know what they were up against or when they were going to be going to trial, so... He wasn't called. The first man called to enter a plea was Joseph Dawson, and he pleaded ignorance. He didn't understand what was going on, but 
Judge Hedges told him, you can't plead ignorance, you have to plead guilty or innocent. So he pled not guilty. When it came to William Bishop, Bishop said, quote, I desire to hear the whole indictment read again. A member of the prosecution, who's leading the prosecution this time, named Holt, he said, you have heard it, just now. And Bishop responded, the former indictment. Holt responded, no, there is no occasion for that. This is an indictment for a case distinct from that. Another prosecutor told him, this is a new indictment, not the old one. Art thou guilty of this piracy and robbery or not guilty? Bishop finally said, not guilty. See, this was just a sudden shocking revelation. They had no idea what was going on. Eventually, everybody pleaded not guilty, except for Henry Every, of course, he wasn't there. The prosecution started lobbing rapid-fire questions at them, and if they weren't able to answer, immediately berated them for not having a defense. It's infuriating. Now, we don't need to recount the questioning here today. Our account of the mutiny on board the Charles II, which we discussed in depth, all comes from this trial. But the prosecution did an excellent job here. You know, last time they'd only had two pirates as their witnesses, John Dan and Philip Middleton, and both of them piped up for this trial as well. But here in this trial about the Charles II, they also had all of those officers who had been aboard when the mutiny occurred. The first man they brought in, Joseph Gravitt, had been the quartermaster on board the James, and he recalled that odd moment when a boat pulled up alongside the James and hailed, Is the drunken boatswain aboard? Then he went into all the horrors that followed, you know, guns drawn, sabers to his throat, and the crew taking over the Charles II. One by one, all of the other relevant officers were brought in for questioning, and they pieced together a tale of rage and barbarity, that's a quote, that was committed against, not the Turk, but against God-fearing Englishmen. It looked bad, and it was bad. The pirates' best defense here, they tried again and again to claim that they had no knowledge of the mutiny before it happened, but that they had been forced to stay on board by real pirates. But that didn't carry much water. I'll share the account of William May here, the older gentleman, he told the court that he was ignorant of the mutiny and that, quote, I believe very few knew of it. I believe not above nine or ten. And he went on, quote, I was never any higher than the upper deck. I was coming up the hatchway and Captain Every was commanding the ship. Did you catch that? His mistake? The truly damning bit in that testimony? He called Henry Every Captain Every. When the transcript of this trial was eventually published, it claimed to be an account of their villainous robberies and barbarities. And here was a sickly old man giving the chief barbarian an honorific that he did not deserve. The prosecutor, Holt, jumped on him. He said, quote, Every was no officer. He had nothing to command. Holt went on to give a bit of a monologue, asking why, if so few of the men were in on the mutiny, why did they not defend their ship? Why did they not defend their captain? Why did they just complacently let all this happen? William May, defeated, could only respond, 
I was surprised. Then the prosecution delivered a severe body blow. They called David Cray to testify. Now you may remember David Cray. He was that man who wandered into a little meeting after dinner in the captain's quarters in which the men, including William May, all toasted their forthcoming voyage. It was a confusing moment at the time, now made abundantly clear. Cray told the court that he'd heard William May refer to Henry Every, his captain, remember, as one of the true cocks of the game and old sportsmen. And then Cray gave this testimony, quote, I met with William May, the prisoner at the bar. What do you say here, says he? I made him no answer, but went down to my cabin, and he said, God damn you, you deserve to be shot through the head, and then he held a pistol to my head. And then I went to my cabin, and presently came orders from Every that those who would go ashore should prepare to be gone, and when the captain was got out of bed, who was then very ill of a fever, Every came and said, I am a man of fortune, and must seek my fortune. End quote. You know how World War II wasn't immediately over after the disastrous invasion of Russia, but it was pretty much over. Or how Napoleon wasn't definitely defeated after his disastrous invasion of Russia, but he was pretty much defeated. That testimony, to my mind, was the pirate's disastrous invasion of Russia. The fat lady may not yet have sung, but it was pretty much over. The prosecution did have a few more nails for the coffin, however. First, they questioned the pirates about their shares. They'd all been captured with at least a little bit of plunder on their person, and if they weren't pirates, then how did they come by that Moorish treasure? It makes for dull reading, mostly. It's just an account of their shares and numbers, but there is one worthy wrinkle. The pirates got kind of heated in the discussion. Apparently, John Sparks, one of their number, was a bit of a gambler and a bit of a thief. See, they'd all lost money to Sparks, only 19 years old at the time, over both games of dice and just outright theft. And they were all pissed about it, so instead of coming up with, you know, a clever lie, they all just yelled at Sparks whenever they were on the stand, and thus they admitted their guilt here. Finally, the prosecution discussed the pinnace. You may recall that the mutineers called a council after they had left port at Acarunia. There they told every man on board that they were free to leave if they chose, and gave them a pinnace to do so. Now, that pinnace did have a hole in it, and they were ten miles from shore, but it was an option. Here I'm just going to quote myself from episode 204. I said, William May would later claim that he only chose to continue on with Every because of the leaky pinnace. His word is questionable, but there were others in the same boat. Every man had a decision to make. Leaky boat or piracy. Riches or death. A drunk captain on a tiny pinnace or a true cock with the finest ship at sea. End quote. In the same boat. Man, my pun game was on point that day. But here, all those chickens are coming home to roost. 
There were seventeen empty seats left on that pinnace when it set sail, and these men who sailed with Henry Every chose not to fill them. This was their Waterloo. William May would argue that he attempted escape several times, but he was foiled every time by Henry Every. He said, when Captain Every came in, I could not go nor stir. The prosecution replied, do not call him Captain. He was a pirate. There were a few more arguments to be made, but it was clear that the decision had already been reached. The jury was finally called upon to make their verdict. For each of the pirates, for every count against them, they were judged guilty. Justice Holt, the head of the prosecution here, said, quote, Gentlemen, you have done extremely well, and you have done very much to regain the honor of the nation. Next time, Execution Dock. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings and reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. Without all of you, this wouldn't be possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like The Great War, a World War I history podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you've yet to check them out, you can do so at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight